all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But I think that some people are just better at maybe not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hi guys, welcome to Closure Optional. This episode of the podcast is with my friend Tanvir. He is a programmer and also sometimes a stand-up comedian and an ex-addict. So in this episode we talk about all of those things as well as fighting because that's what I do. And uh, we talk about both of our past history with drug use and abuse and how we both got past them. It's a great conversation. We also talk a bit about uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So if that's something that you are ever interested in or know nothing about like me, um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, you'll have to forgive me because I got um, some new mic stands to make my studio more professional. And I was so excited to use them that I didn't realize that when you move it, it sounds like you've just thrown something down a stairwell. So forgive me uh, for the intermittent interruptions periodically. Hope you guys had a good week. And here it is. Buy weed online. Made you a millionaire. Um, yeah. I was supposed to go there, and I drove up there, and I turned back around, because I knew if I went inside, what would happen. Feeling like you have a bit of a connection to your life kind of makes you feel a little bit less needy. Exactly. Connection. That's the word. Yeah. Hi, Tambir. Hey, Lorna. <laughs> How's it going? Pretty good. Good. Welcome to my shed. It's an awesome shed. I'm impressed. I'm glad. You're the first like um, person that's been in here since I've had it completely set up, and I'm glad that you were so impressed. I'm honored. <laughs> um, so, what's going on? You just came back from Canberra. Yep. A five-day road trip from Canberra. Stopped and in Coffs in Sydney. It's amazing. Like You're probably the only person I know that just like will randomly be like, oh, yeah, I've just drove for seven days to nowhere and then came back. You and Nick, probably. Nick's the only other one that I would go like, what? what? Where have you been? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, road is a good place to discover new stuff. You can just put Spotify on random or Stitcher on random and just let it roll. And yeah. Yeah, you find out about a lot of new things. Yeah. Yeah, man. I went the, the last time that I was just saying before we started recording that um, I, the last time I went to Canberra was for that weed rally. We organized like a protest at Parliament House on like the opening day of Parliament House. So it was last year in February. And I was training for, yeah, I was. I was training for nationals. So I was like right up just about to fight for a national championships. And then I got in a bus with a bunch of weed activists and went down to, yeah. <laughs> to Canberra. It was so funny. We drove in one day. It was like 15 hours or something stupid. We drove in one day, stayed the night, woke up, did the rally, and then came home. But it was probably one of the coolest things. Like, I actually achieved something with the weed people. Like, a lot of times we don't achieve much because we're too stoned to get anything done. Yep. It was so cool. It was such a great day. That was the day I, um, um, Pauline Hansen was there. I was the MC. <laughs> I had to introduce her. I was so stupid. I think I'd heard Damien say on a podcast once, like, um, that, uh, that Pauline Hansen was Australia's favorite racist. Yeah, she is. <laughs> yeah, she yeah, yeah, is. Yeah. And so I went in there, um, Oh, I just was annoyed. You know, like when people get really, and I may have told you this story before, but you know, when people get really, um, like fawning over 
political people or famous people or something, people like forget that they are a human being and they just like are laying down on the floor in front of them. Like it was so gross. All these people that I've been traveling down there with, like they're all really into, you know, changing the system, obviously, mistrusting the government. And then as soon as they see Pauline Hansen, like they're all like bending over at the waist, like, oh, it's so good to see, you know, and I just got so fucking, you know, I just annoyed me. And so when she came up, um, it was her turn to speak. And I just said, please welcome Australia's favorite racist. And then um, I literally like half the crowd looked at me and was kind of like, they didn't want to say out loud that they agreed with me, but they kind of like got excited and laughed a little bit. And then the rest of the crowd just fucking death stared me. Like they were so angry because she was the only one at the time that was kind of backing medical cannabis, but she was doing it for fucking votes. Yeah, that's. Have you got a video of that? No, man. I would love to watch that. Oh, I, would I know. Love to watch the reaction of that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. We want. We looked everywhere for the video because um, my friend Micah, he runs. Um, He's an amazing guy. He's down in Newcastle, and he does all kinds of cool shit uh, for the community and for, well, for the weed community, but for other people as well. But he, um, yeah, he runs a website called PopArc, P-A-P-A-R-C, and he, he was filming the whole thing, but he was walking next to Pauline Hansen. So all you can hear in the back of the background was like, racist <laughs> and then you <laughs> see Pauline Hansen walk up yeah. and then she's like well some people might not all agree with me <laughs> I'm just like oh fuck I was so gutted but uh I lost a lot of friends that day I walked off uh, like away from the podium um towards the crowd I just walked away like I wasn't gonna sit there and listen to her sp- spout some bullshit I wasn't interested and um these two guys like they literally like were just the biggest beefiest kind of you don't want to say bogan, but e. You know they were definitely on that on that leaning bogan leaning, like you know, like a big fox racing cap mm-hmm. or some horrible thing. And I literally thought that they were going to kill me. Like they were just sitting there, like rock staring at me, and I was going, "Oh fuck! Oh god! I'm going to get hurt here." They would have been in for a surprise if they tried. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I would have been. Yeah, we tied the shit out of them. <laughs> uh, have you ever had to like take care of a situation like that? No. No. Like I don't know that I'd actually be any good at it. Because it's in fighting uh, doesn't when I train Muay Thai it doesn't feel like I'm training to hurt people or to fight people because it feels like a sport and most of the training we do is against pads or a bag so you know like you've definitely got the ability to hit something but then when you're in a fight it's a it's a big event it's a fanfare there's people watching there's lights there's a ref that tells you when to stop and go and you know, there's sounds that triggers, and my trainer is really the one that's actually just shouting instructions at me. I don't do anything unless my trainer tells me to, pretty much, or unless my body does it automatically. Yeah, I guess even if you're not the first person to attack, in response, you'd be able to take care of the situation. Once they throw some shit at yeah. you, then you'll be able to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the one we always say for, like, a self-defense type of situation <clears throat> that Richie always says is just a jab, like you throw your front hand out, just a straight punch out to their head to kind of get their attention at the top and also see how far away they are from you, mm-hmm. and then kick their leg as hard as you can because they don't, they're not going to, nobody who's, who, anyone who's not trained in Muay Thai is not going to know that that leg kick is coming, and it'll drop them immediately. Yeah. And Richie also, um, he used to be a bouncer, um, and he said that he used to drop people, like all drunk idiots that were just getting out of control, big, huge dudes, because he's not the tallest guy. He's probably just about about my height or smaller. And he, um, so he just drop them with knees all the time, just knees straight to their sternum or straight to their ribs and they just fall. 
Damn. Yeah, I was. I'm actually kind of worried about it because I would imagine that nobody would expect me to be able to do anything. So then they'd probably, you know, fall over and hurt themselves. I always get worried about that gross thing where you knock somebody over and then they hit their head on the floor and then they're fucked for life. I'd be scared of that. Yeah. What's the hardest you've been punched in a fight and in training? Um. Uh, I've had a couple fights too distinctly where oh three actually where I got hit hard enough that I saw a double for a minute and you feel it's really the first fight that had happened when somebody really hit me hard it was the most amazing thing I went into like ultra boxing mode and I've never slipped punches in sparring ever like I'm sh- I'm pretty shit at actually defending myself I usually just kind of walk in with my hands up and then I kind of trust my hands and knees to protect me more than my my ability to slip punches or whatever. I can't slip punches. And, um, but I got hit hard. I got rocked and I kind of like stumbled, stood up. And I don't think she noticed yet that I was rocked and I, I could see her and everything. I could, was totally conscious, but just a bit shaky. And then all of a sudden for the rest of the fight, I was slipping punches, ducking and weaving, <laughs> moving out of the way. And I was going, what the fuck? I've never done this ever. What was her name? Um, that was, uh, this was a fight against, um, her name was Kimmy, What's her surname? Kimmy Maloney was that Kimmy fight. Kimmy Maloney. All yeah. right. It was a great. It was a really fun fight. That was probably one of one of my funnest. One of the first times I realized, like, oh wait, I actually could enjoy fighting. I've lost that again now, sadly. But I did after that fight. Be like, whoa, this is fun because it felt like a game. You know, it felt like I was moving and we were both trading, hitting each other hard, but but moving all the time. You know, and I was. Yeah, it was just the most amazing thing. You see that left hand coming. She was a southpaw, same as me. And I see the left hand come and just move out of the way and come up, boom, <laughs> big hook. And I was just going, fuck, how did I do that? But I think that's the survival mode that happened in my head. My head was like, uh-oh, I got hit. Don't get hit again. And then it was just moving. Um, and then the that last fight at Nationals where I broke my nose was the that's the worst I've ever been hurt in a fight. Well, yeah. I broke my ribs in a fight once and um, I cracked my sternum, but I didn't notice it until after the fight was over because that's the kind of thing that you don't notice until someone like pushes on it or until you have to breathe or something like that yeah, <laughs> or you yeah. have to laugh. Um, and there's so much adrenaline in the fight that you don't really notice a thing like that unless they continually hit that spot. Um, and, yeah, for some reason, I, I knew something was kind of wrong. I felt it, but it didn't hurt. But the last fight at Nationals, just then, when I broke my nose, she kicked me, front kick, straight up the center of my nose. And that fucking hurt. I, that was the first time I was like, oh, shit. Oh, no, I broke my nose. That hurts. And we actually, at the end of the day, don't even know if it was broken or not. It was just a huge, big... Yeah, it was pretty well, fucked. If you blew it, would it shut your eye? Yeah, it shut my whole cheek. Like, my yeah. whole cheek went down. As Blair was saying that to me, my trainer, he's like, don't blow your nose. Don't. And I just I was so grossed out and disgusted, and I was crying as well because I was disappointed in my effort. And so I just blew my nose everywhere, and I got blood. I just blew blood all over him and Iggy and the mat. And I, oh, I was fucked. I was such a piece of shit that day. Yeah. It was tough, man. That That's... The fight game is so mental. And I, I've noticed in my experience with martial arts, at least, like jujitsu guys tend to be really analytical yeah. because there's so much more time. I mean, obviously, they'll cap anybody who's good at jujitsu will, as soon as they see an opening, will take it in a breakneck speed, like immediately. But they, um, that's what's so cool about the sport is that you kind of slowly creep your way into a position that you're ready for, and then you're always 
perceiving where their body is, always finding out where the holes might be. And then as soon as you see one, you grab it. And I think probably really good Muay Thai, especially from Thailand, is like that. But uh, Western Muay Thai is really aggressive. Like, yeah. and, and they're actually, it's actually um, scored set differently. In Western traditions, it's really, uh, you get rewarded for aggression. So if the fight's even, let's say, uh, as far as points are concerned, that somebody's landed the same amount of significant strikes, the person who's more aggressive in, and shows more heart in Western styles will win. But in Thailand, that person will lose. Why is that? Because they're showing desperation. Mm. Yeah, How cool good, is that? Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> it's amazing. In Thailand, they reward composure, patience, and smarts, intelligence. So they want that person... If you're in the fifth round and you're steaming ahead, gun, like guns blazing, showing, giving it all you've got, they'll think that you're desperate. You think you must be losing the fight and you're trying to do whatever you can to knock them out. So they'll um, generally give the fight to the other fighter. Mm. Uh, although I would like to see somebody who's behind on the scorecards be more aggressive towards the end if they are behind. Yeah. So it, that is kind of unfair that no, no, just for their aggression. If they're behind, yeah. they will, like, they could still win the fight. But if they're not, if, it's, if it could go either way and one of the fighters is showing more desperation, they will reward the other fighter. All right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, composure trumps... Uh, aggression. Uh, yes, absolutely. And also because in Thailand, I mean, the whole sport is about respect, even though it seems crazy when you're thinking about just bashing somebody else's head in. It's not, you're not looking to hurt them. You're looking to outscore them and to win the fight. Because a lot of Thais, like that's how they make their money. That's how they feed their family. They don't want to maim somebody so that they can't keep fighting. They, yeah, sure. They want their opponent. And one of the other most uh, beautiful things that I've heard come out of Thailand too was that if you don't, it's your duty to bring your best into the ring because it draws the best out in your opponent. Mm -hmm. If you don't do your best against them and make them work as hard as they possibly can, you're doing them a disservice by not letting them show their best to you. Mm. That's so cool. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Is that what you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, not me, man. I don't know what... I, I, uh, I've got so many weird ideas about whether fighting's okay or not or i think yeah i'm i'm as you say like before we were talking about like i am way too far inside my head to really know if i'm capable of anything ever and fighting the kind of the beauty of fighting for me is that i just let my trainers decide for me they know better than i do so i trust them and i and i really trust them these guys have got my best interest at heart and blair gives me so much time he he I don't know anybody that's more generous than him with his time. Like, he's exhausted. He's got a huge team of fighters he's got to look after. And every day, without fail, he'll show up and teach me stuff. Every yeah. day. It's just amazing. So I, I trust, like, that we have a reciprocal relationship. As long as I show up and do what he says and work hard, he will, he will get my back. Awesome. And he knows, yeah, because he can see me from the outside. You know that thing? You just cannot see yourself from the outside in. Yeah. You have no idea how you are and how you're being. It's cool doing podcasts or doing videos and stuff because you can actually see yourself. You still have to see yourself through your own filters of yourself. You know, like, ah, oh, why'd you say that? Oh, you're an idiot. You're boring. But to, it, you can get a little tiny look at what you're like from the outside. And being able to see it, like, there's nothing more real than a fight because you don't show up, you get the shit kicked out of you. 
You show up, you do your best, you come out fine. It's so tangible. And comedy's a bit like that, too. Like, if you are having an off night and you're not feeling it, you're not connecting to the crowd, you're not reading the crowd, you're going to fucking bomb. Yeah. It's funny how with stand-up comedy and fighting, uh, in terms of your performance, one of the things I've noticed is, like, you know, when uh, you've been through your camp, you've eaten healthy, you've eaten right, you're at your physical best, and you go, you're more likely to put out a good performance. Yeah. It's kind of applicable with stand-up, too. I've noticed that the days when I'm not like the whole day, I was not just lazing around eating bad food and yeah. whatnot. If I was like, uh, maybe I had a workout, if I, if I was in the right space, was tuning my mind, doing the right things, I'm more likely to have a really good gig. Yeah, yeah, that, shit, yeah. That physical part does transcend into your performance. And uh, sometimes when you can't control anything else, that's all you can control. Mm. Yeah, do yeah, you get the sensation of like being in the zone um, when you get on stage or not, or like feeling distinctly out of the zone? No, nah, every now and then you get the zone, but I guess uh, there's always that, um, what's the next bit I'm going to do? So you still got to have that thinking voice on, which is preparing the material, lining it up in your head. So this comes out this and this comes out this. There are times when you've completely memorized your set so very well. And then you can improvise here and there. Yeah. But at the level I am at, most of the time you're doing open mics and you're yeah. still working out material and all that. So you can take the easy route and do material you know and then like every now and then get in the zone. But most of the time you are working through new shit. So yeah. And do you ever that, feel like just sometimes that it comes out easier or faster or more natural? And other times like you get on stage and you don't have that like, I'm going to shit myself? Um, yeah, um, again, if if we could narrow it down to what exactly was that reason, we'd all, you know, tune into it, but we can't. Um, but I do feel like when, uh, your intent is, uh, free of that ego showing off or hurting somebody, but Mm. your intent is like very pure, like I'm really going to try and entertain this crowd or I'm just going to be myself and like not hurt anybody with the things I say, that's when it's more likely to come out. Yeah, see, when you're, yeah, I completely agree with that. We were talking about this with Iggy last week. Like, if I make a painting for the sake of showing people that I'm good at art, it's always a piece of shit. You know, it just it, it just feels like it, it's trying too hard. You know, it just yeah. you can read it, you can look at it and go, gross. You know, it's like a, the selfie picture when you're just sitting there, like, mm, I took three hundred of these, and this is the one I picked. <laughs> it's so clearly not you, and it's not your natural face or any of that. You know, it's just this self that you're trying to project on other people. And I do it a lot, like when I feel like I don't have a future in anything. So then I'm like, oh, my artwork has to save me. So I'll sit there and be like, well, I can just draw this because I know I'm good at it. So I'll just keep doing that and try and produce it enough of them so that people tell me I'm good or something. It's fucking horrible. It's gross. It doesn't feel satisfying at the time. And I can tell like that the painting doesn't work. But then there are other times when, as you say, you have this like direct connection to expressing a thought or an idea or whatever, and you just want the idea to come out come hell or high water, however it gets out. And then by the time it's done, it feels like you like, you know, little, really made something. And it feels like it doesn't matter if anyone ever saw it or doesn't see it. It's just, it's done now. It came out and it's pure and it's in its own kind of raw, pure form. And then you lose track of that again because then you're like, oh, but it is good. I should make sure everyone sees this. <laughs> yeah. Make sure I show this off to everyone. We're such fucking 
gross creatures like that, though. Like that, we need that validation. Even when you think you're done, you're just really satisfied with your own self. There's still always that little voice in the back of your head, like, "Well, I wish somebody else could see this." <laughs> in some ways, it's a good filter too, because what if you're deluding yourself, thinking it's great? So you're seeking out some sort of feedback on it. Yeah. So in some ways, I think those voices, even though that they might be like slightly egotistical, that behavior, it still kind of helps. You know. Oh, you for sure have to get it out there. Yeah. You have to you have because to you're right. Like you can't just. I can't sit in my room and make paintings and think that I'm the best thing in the world. And then, but I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. Like, if I, who am I hurting? I could sit in the shed all day and make paintings and sure. fucking whatever. But you're right. Like, I feel like the human experience, there's m- the most value you can bring to the human experience is through connection. And so if I'm producing anything to have meaning in the world, I've got to try and I have to overcome my own stupid fears about being not good enough and just put it out there and see what happens. But the real dangerous trouble with that is when you put it out there and you find out that it's not that good, the challenge is there. The challenge isn't in making the artwork in the first place. It's like, okay, being humble enough to figure out how to make it better or to realize that that may not be the thing you need to do or all of the above, you know, you got to work harder. Yeah, reality check. We all need that. And there's some people who enjoy it where they go, oh, man, I've been embarrassed here. But they, <laughs> they know the truth, so they enjoy it. Just yeah. the same with all the psychedelics that we do when this, when we have that ego death. It shows us the piece of shit that we're being. Yeah, what's your experience uh, with something like that? Um, it has uh, improved. Earlier, there would be a lot more bad trips, but as you know better than anybody those bad trips are the best ones they improve you they go a long way uh now it's been a lot of insights the last few trips have just been a lot of insights and also on the physical level it's been very beneficial like every now and then you get in the habit of a bad posture and you start subconsciously holding it and then you do a strong hallucinogen and then it it makes you aware of that and lets it go which what hallucinogens were you having lately So I've done, uh, the last one I did was uh, ayahuasca, and before that was ibogaine. So those are the two of my favorite ones. Um, You know, they say these plants have their own uh, masculine and feminine traits, and ayahuasca is referred to as the mother, and ibogaine is referred to as the father. So the way they speak to you is also in a very... uh, uh, feminine and masculine way. Uh, Ibogaine is very direct. It doesn't give you any fairy tales. There's no angels, no nothing. Or there might be for some people, but it's a very direct message, like, do this. And even physically, you get, like, really sick. It's just the way your father would treat you, you know? And (laughs) this one, ayahuasca, is very caring and nurturing, and the message is quite gentle. I find it just in my case, yeah. Yeah. And uh, when I say gentle, I mean in contrast to Ibogaine. Ibogaine, you're sick for three days. For the first night, you're throwing a black stuff, which is like almost feels like tar. Wow. All sorts of like toxins. And then afterwards, you feel really light. Your body moves great. You like, you can stretch beyond like what you were able to. A lot of pain is gone. And your mind is really clear and very calm. Um, So... But to get to that, it gives you a beating. So ayahuasca also gets you, but not as clear as where ibogaine gets you. But again, it's a lot more gentle. So it was a few days. Yeah, so first night you're really sick. You're really sick. Uh, Do you want to tell people uh, what ibogaine is for and all that? Yeah, well, go ahead. I mean, all I've heard about it is it's from the tabernacle root, right? From Yeah, tabernacle aboga. That's the plant uh, that it comes from. 
Uh, Ibogaine is a very strong herbal antibiotic, Mm -hmm. amongst other things. But what it does, it basically cleanses your system out of a lot of foreign substances, foreign impurities that are within your body. Um, It is used in treating a lot of addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's how I discovered Ibogaine. Uh, What were you trying to get off of? Yeah, I was trying to get off of uppers. So ever since, uh, so in 2009 or so, I went to London and uh, just for doing stand-up because I was doing stand-up in uh, Sydney and then I went to London to do stand-up and then I had I ended up doing more coke than I did stand-up <laughs> there. <Whoops>. So like, <laughs> I got to get my life in check, so I came back and then I did Ibogaine and that reset my addiction tendencies. And uh. not that I have not relapsed since, but I've had a couple of relapses after that too. But it is because I put myself again in those situations with the same people with the drugs being around. Yeah. So Ibogaine itself doesn't cure your addiction completely. You there's It's one part. It's the physical part to it. It brings yeah. you a lot of peace. It clear, clears you out. A lot of people who are on heroin and all that, they have had big struggles and you do Ibogaine. And even their withdrawal symptoms on Ibogaine are minimized and then they can get wow. clean. So... Yeah, so that's why I did Ibogaine. And then ever since then, I've kept doing it once a year. I like doing it once a year. It's I like getting in that clarity, uh, mode of clarity. And then, yeah, just ayahuasca to compliment it maybe a couple of times, yeah. So before we talk about the ayahuasca, I'm still I'm still really curious about the Ibogaine. I've, I've read some amazing results that they've had with heroin, definitely, as you said, with heroin, also alcoholism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and it's... So you're kind of like in a structured environment and looked after for three or four days while you go through this process. Correct. And do you drink the Ibogaine every day? No. So you don't drink Ibogaine. You take it as a capsule. There's two ah. forms of, or three forms of Ibogaine that you can take. One is the root bark. Root bark is the plant itself, which has got the yeah. alkaloids, which the Ibogaine alkaloid, um, which is the one that is the active substance that uh, puts you in that state. Yeah. Then there is the total alkaloid. So in the root bark, there's a small percentage of the content that is alkaloid. But with total alkaloid, there's a very high percentage of it that is uh, the alkaloid itself. And then there's the HCL, which is the chemically extracted pure version. Wow. So often when they are treating, it depends on the country that they treat people in. A lot of countries, Ibogaine is legal. I think UK, it's legal. New Zealand, uh, it's... I think so, it's legal. Uh, Or maybe they had it legal for a few years there. And uh, so depending on the patient they're treating, uh, the condition of their health and who's treating you, they might use either total alkaloid or HCL and then a little bit of root bark to just give you a taste of it. So you'll chew a little bit of root bark and you'll take them the rest of it in capsules. Okay. And it kicks in about in three, four hours' time. And then you start throwing up. You throw up from like your insides of your soul. You like, <laughs> oh just like the worst kind of puking. And uh, you just get really sick. You get really nauseous. You're sweating. You like I was throwing up like black tar. Like it was thick as tar. I don't know what it was. And what uh, was your brain feeling like at the time? Uh, okay, so the brain, there's a lot of like all sorts of uh, subconscious thoughts come up that you had repressed or maybe you're not thinking about it so much and they come up and like you're either processing them and uh getting lost in them or 
often you can process it and let it go. But at the same time, if you just like focused on your breath and did that basic breath counting and meditation mm. while you're lying down, because it's very hard to sit up on Ibogaine, you have to lie down. Wow. So when you're lying down and you close your eyes, very soon, like I started to see like this golden dome in my head. And it was uh, the m- most clear visuals I've ever had until that point in my life. Wow. Yeah. And after the whole Ibogaine session was over, I was able to get into that zone for days and weeks. But then again, started drinking coffee, started all the bad food and all that. And then all that yep. slowly goes away. Just you know? goes away. Yeah, yeah. life, com- life, <laughs> life comes back. Yeah. I know. Wow, that's amazing. And so you've done this to yourself kind of once a year. Do you find that each, any time you've gone back, does it get any easier or does it feel about the same experience every single time? Yeah, at one point I almost got addicted to Ibogaine, which is so funny <laughs> because it's an anti-addiction drug. I yeah. was enjoying getting in that state that I didn't mind being sick for three days for that clarity. Wow. And once I did Ibogaine, and Ibogaine, like, just like plants speak to you. I know it, yeah. it could just be me speaking to myself, but at the moment it feels like it the feels plants like speak. That, yeah. I know what you're saying. And what it said was, are you tired of doing me? Because I'm tired of doing you. <laughs> That's yeah. so cool. So then it's I like, knew get out of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Then I knew I had to stop. And that's how most hallucinogens are. They let yes. you know when, it, when to stop. You've had Isn't enough. Isn't that yeah. an amazing thing? I know, like, when people... I try, it, it frustrates me to no end that we put drugs in the same category all together, that, like, weed and coke and fucking heroin and um, acid and ibogaine and ayahuasca are all in the same category of, like, oh, these are drugs. Obviously, we've categorized them by psychedelics or uppers or stimulants or whatever. But, yeah, like, that... Because acid is the same, weed's the same for me at least. I know a lot of people have trouble with habitual weed problems, but I am exactly the same. If I'm smoking too much weed, I will, as soon as I get high, it's almost like my myself inside myself goes, what the fuck are you doing? It's like, get out of here. I'm like, oh yeah, sorry, I know, I've gone too far. And then I just stop and then take a few days off, a week, a month, a year, whatever, however long it feels like, and then I'll go back to it. And the same thing happens every time, no matter what. If I get too deep into it and I'm not doing anything with my life, it, like switches a little switch in my head and goes what the fuck are you doing oh yeah sorry and acid's the same i've never ever felt addicted to acid it's like there is not probably it's hard to find a better feeling than that beautiful clarity that comes like at the end of an acid trip when you're not i don't like taking acid to the point where i'm tripping balls because i think like i find it too distracting and it scares me i'm i'm a little bit yeah, I'm probably just too nervous. I get freaked out about the structure of reality. <laughs> You're yeah, better sure. at that than me. And I think, um, so I love that feeling, of that beautiful feeling of clarity and just like, it feels like I'm home in a way. I don't know how to describe it any better than that. You know, the feeling, it's the opposite feeling of homesickness. When yeah, you're a little kid yeah. and you get sent off to like stay the night at a friend's house and you're like, oh, I just want to be with my mom. That it's that same kind of similar sensation, the exact opposite. It's like you are finally held, you're safe. No, all of your doubt, all of your fear, all of your bullshit is gone. For whatever those three hours is, you are just the pure, clear, beautiful version of yourself. And you can see other people for exactly what they are as well. Which I found this was so amazing. We we did this a little while ago. Uh, my friends and I. Um, took very tiny little amounts of acid um, at uh, for a friend's birthday. We all went and rented a house and took this acid. And it was just amazing, like just looking around at this family that I've created over the last 10 years. These people have become absolutely my family, like so close to me. The first people I've ever let into my life that closely, you know, that weren't, I wasn't a product of their vagina. And they like... 
Um, and I was just looking around at them, just seeing like these beautiful bright lights that they were like that. These things, they were just so warm and clear and open. And one of our friends didn't want to take the acid cause he doesn't, he, he's had some pretty seriously bad experiences with it in the past. And so he had MDMA instead and it was just such a drastic difference that just feeling that sensation, like I'm looking at him and I love him to death. I think he's, he's one of my brothers and it was just this weird disconnect. It just felt like there was static on the radio between us. You know, it was just so weird. And, and I get that feeling all the time when I'm, even when I'm not stoned anymore, just if I hang out with people that are drinking all the time, like I just feel static. I just feel something is not connected. Something's not right. There's something that clouds a person. I think there's, Categories of drugs that make people more open, and there's categories that make people more closed. Cocaine, meth, um, uh, meth is a tough one because you do you <laughs> feel like you're open, but you're not because it's it's meth is almost like a little, it's like a s- crossover between MDMA and cocaine. I felt like. Did you get that same sensation? Sure. Um, George Carlin has a very good way of describing this. He did it on an interview. He did it with Chris Rock several years ago where he said there's two kinds of drugs. There's self-regulating mm-hmm. drugs that don't need other people to regulate them. And that's things like acid. Yes, and yeah, the yeah, other okay. ones, you know, are the trouble ones. They don't <laughs> let you know when you've had enough. Yes. So yeah, yeah, okay. meth, uh, it was only enough when I was like about to faint. You know, you would take yourself to that point. All these, all these uppers are like that. And sometimes with people who struggle with downers, it's like that. I know yeah. a couple of friends of mine who still struggle with heroin. And uh, they are good most days, but every now and then they relapse and they don't know when to stop either. Even though they are not habitual everyday users, it still creeps back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, it's exactly that. That's a really good point of... uh, Yeah, that's a very good point of distinction is that one of them self-regulates and the other one doesn't. Because any psychedelic... Because MDMA is a funny one like that. MDMA does feel really good and really connected at the time, but only if you kind of take it for me at least anyway, in a honest way, because I think the shame of what happens after an MDMA <laughs> trip, if you weren't yeah, honest yeah. with yourself and anybody else, like if you live pretty closely to your genuine self, that when you take MDMA, it's not such a drastic difference. But people that have, you know, really a hard time expressing themselves emotionally or saying things that they think or, you know, being open to other people, then they have MDMA and they'll go out telling everyone their life secrets because it just feels so goddamn good to connect finally. And then the next morning, <laughs> the, the shame and come down of like letting people into your heart that you didn't mean to. I mean, some of the, my worst ones are just ones where I've like met a guy or whatever and been like, I love you. And then later been like, Ugh, now I'm committed to something I shouldn't. Like I've got to yeah. give it a few weeks before I pull out of this. Because you do, you feel like you see people for exactly what they are. Like, this just beautiful life force, whatever it is. It's like all of the day-to-day nonsense of what human beings are supposed to be and how are you going to do the laundry? Is he going to wash the dishes? Is he going to look after my kids? Like all that stuff just fucking disappears. It doesn't matter. It's just like you're a soul and I'm a soul and all I want to do is connect to you today. Yeah, true. And so when I'm with like my close family like that, you know, and we have a night like that, it just feels so fucking powerful. It's just beautiful. And a lot of the stuff that maybe you might have some deep-seated kind of issues or shame or stuff that you haven't talked to about with them and then you kind of feel like it's okay to bring that thing up like you know i'm really jealous of you sometimes and then and and there's just no shame there's just this beautiful like oh fucking sorry water um yeah it's just this beautiful like exchange of of connection yeah 
Yeah, that's true. So, um, how many years have you now been in Gold Coast? Um, I've been, well, I've been in Australia ten, well, no, eleven years almost. And so this will, I didn't do all of them on the on the Gold Coast. I started here and then went to WA and then lived in Darwin for a very black period, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then came went to Cairns to try and escape myself in Darwin, and then came here. And this is the only gym that you've always trained at? No, no, no. I trained um, trained up in Darwin, in Cairns. I trained at Margaret River a little bit, only for a month or something down there. Uh, I trained over here on the Gold Coast at Matrix for a little bit when I very first started doing Muay Thai. And then, um, yeah, Darwin, there's an amazing gym up there called Manho Academy. And I, I still see them. They come down to competitions down here all the time. Still, I still get to see my trainer come down periodically. He's awesome. And then... Um, yeah, Cairns as well. Cairns, that was the one I trained at like an MMA gym. So I did a lot of jujitsu as well. Did you fight out of all of them as well? Or this is the one? That no, this is of? the only one that I fought out of because I had, um, I did, I had a couple matches for fights up in Darwin. One, they were looking to try and match me for my first fight in Darwin. And then I ended up moving to Cairns. And I, it took a long time up there because I was so fucked up. Like I would have three weeks of just binge drinking and drugs. And then I'd be like, Oh no, I've got to try and go back to training and then I'd go back to training for a little bit and then get distracted and go get fucked up again and then go back. So I think I didn't quite have the commitment required. And, and I think like, I mean, there are such good people over there that he could see that I was trying, but I wasn't quite all there. And then, um, I ended up needing to leave Darwin so that I could really like just, get out of that hole it's darwin's crazy have you been up there yeah i've been to darwin yeah it's fucked it's just because it's it's backpacker central because it's the most like metropolis that you can get your remote work visa from like because yeah for the say if you're a british citizen you can come to this country for a year and work but during that year you have to spend three months doing what they call regional work or seasonal work and that usually means like working on a farm somewhere remote but darwin actually counts as regional work so you can still party every single day, go to bars, work at a normal job. As long as it's construction or something like that, you can work for three months and get your visa again. And then it allows you to have a second year. So it's just a town full of English and Irish backpackers. Wow. That are, you know, 20 to 26. So I can see how you get caught up in the partying there. I would. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I was sober, man. When I got there, I because um, I'd, I'd been having some trouble just drinking a lot. Uh, mostly, it was just mostly all working. I was working in the mines and I was depressed and I was just drinking nonstop. And I'd, I'd wake up in the morning because I was working in the mines. All of my friends were at work all day and I was home for the week. So no one was around to hang out with me. And I had this thing in my head that like my only way out is to make artwork that I don't want to have a job ever again, so I have to make artwork, and it has to be good, and I have to be better than everyone, but I'm way too scared to show it to anyone. I have no idea how to sell it. I have no idea. I, I'm way too embarrassed to like go to a gallery and figure out what an art person would do, and I've never been to school. So all of those things, I would just wake up in the morning, sit there, try and draw something, try and paint something. It was all so try-hard, so pretentious, and then i just start drinking at 10. Because <laughs> it was like, what the fuck else am I going to do? And, and it wasn't even like I was a fun drinker. It was just like I'd just be drinking all day by myself and eventually like end up falling asleep for most of the day and then um, wake up, try and... I did like a little bit of exercise periodically, lay by the pool, tried to read books. And I, I was also reading books so that I could be impressive. 
<laughs> you know, it was like yeah, I was collecting yeah. knowledge yeah. so that I could be a person that people would find interesting, but then I never talked to anybody. Yeah. And I was doing exactly that thing we were talking about before, like where you, I was just spouting facts in environments with people because I thought that they might find me interesting and keep me. But then as soon as I was out of facts, then I was just like an empty shell. Hmm. Seeking validation. <laughs> so, you know, you just said that you were drinking at 10. Do, what do you think of uh, people who do need to drink and who do need to partake in substances to create their, that artwork? Do you think oh, if, they got, what, uh, if they got like sober and if they started running and not eating red meat and living their right life, would they put out better artwork? Uh, I don't know, man. I, I mean, I think people connect to themselves in different ways. And I, yeah, I think there's an argument to that. And that was a little bit, I think, of what I was trying to do. Like, I thought I was going to be Jack Kerouac. And like, I was so cool just drinking whiskey. You know, <laughs> like, I was always yeah, whiskey because yeah, yeah. I just thought whiskey was so, you know, like badass. Oh, it's just so gross. Like, I, yeah, because I've read so many of the people that I love and love reading. I love their artwork. They're all fucked up. So I was like, cool, I need to be fucked up like them. But I was like too scared to actually be fucked up, so I would just sit there and drink all day. It was just yeah. so stupid. And I was really clouding myself. I know that my best comes from connection. Anytime I'm actively connected to the person I'm talking to or to the work that I'm trying to make or when I'm fighting, you know, connected to my body, connected to my trainers, that's when I know I do my best. And alcohol disconnects me. Sure. So it may, it may be different for other people. I know a lot of people that have... You know, some just fucked life situations that have built these big shells up around them. And when they get drunk, they let their shells down and they really come out and be a, you know, be the best version of themselves possible. I don't think it's a hard and fast rule, but I certainly think that for the most part, alcohol doesn't help anyone be a better version of themselves. Have you seen this movie Born to be Blue about Chet Baker? No. It's on Netflix. So Chet Baker was a trumpet player, a jazz trumpet player. And, um, he had his teeth kicked in by his dealer. So he was a heroin addict. He got his teeth kicked in by his dealer. And all he could do was um, basically play the trumpet to make a living. And he didn't have his teeth. His embouchure was gone. Oh my so God. he had to teach himself to replay the trumpet without any teeth. And while he was bleeding from his mouth, he'd keep tissue paper in his mouth just to like, you know, so that it would be comfortable. <laughs> so he developed this sloppy technique. And thanks to that, it created the Chet Baker sound. Oh, so cool. if you want to play like Chet Baker, you need to have your teeth kicked in, <laughs> basically. So he he found his voice and all that. But then he had he was sober for a few years, and the kind of music he produced, he just said that now nah, I need to be high because when I'm high, I can get deeper inside each one of my notes. Mm. So he just left his wife, or his wife left him because she found out he was using, and then he moved to Amsterdam. And then just spent the rest of his life doing heroin and making this music that is regarded as his greatest work. Wow. So it's weird how some people, drugs disconnect them. Mm. And some people, that's exactly what they need. Like you can't tell Charles Bukowski to not drink because yeah, that's yeah. exactly what makes him Who connect. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. Well, and I think there's also a major element of fear to that too. Like that, say you've got a Charles Bukowski type character and his whole life is falling apart and the only thing he wants to do is clean himself up. But he knows that if he does that, he has to give up on the thing that he does. Yeah. You know, that he's not going to be the same. And that's, that's again, that challenge is that it, it, the message that you're trying to convey through your artwork or your activity, whatever it is, has to be greater than all of your own devices. Does that make sense? So yeah. like even, so if I've got 
I've decided that I have to drink in order to socialize with people. Once the drinking goes away, I have got to figure out that con- that socializing with other people is worth me getting past that stupid thing. And at the end of the day, creating good music that you connect to has to be greater than clouding everything with some substance in order to get there. But for them, for for him, it sounds like the only way he felt connected to anything that met, made meant anything to him was to be high and make music. And if that truly connects him and that's his thing and that just satisfies him and he's not a miserable person, I, I don't think there's anything wrong yeah. with it. And I don't know who we, who we would be to say that you have to be that person. Absolutely. Somebody has to take that bullet, yeah. 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 Well, and that's what, I mean, so much beautiful art is created that way through tor- torment and through the, and the artist is almost like a sacrifice to the art that they're producing. It's like, you know, uh, we eat meat, but I get when the guys from PETA are protesting against the uh, inhumane transporting of animals and all that, but I'm not going to be the guy to go protest. So somebody else has to go do it for our sake. <laughs> so somebody has to be miserable and create that great artwork for our yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes that's the case, I think. But I think also, um, I think it's also an attachment to seeking like your authentic self in every experience. So if your authentic self is that you get high and make artwork, until that stops being valuable, you can keep going. But when you become the character of yourself that gets high to make artwork, you've got to change. True. Do you know? Because there's well definitely put, yeah. that too. I can't, I'm trying to think of a good example. There've got to be some comedians that have done that. That it was just like they, they become gimmicks. Uh, I don't know about comedians, but right now there's this kid called Lil Zan. Have you heard of him? No. So Lil Zan is this 21 year old rapper. So now there's like this whole scene of like these white. Um, middle-income family kids who saw their parents use Xanax and Valiums, and now they are rapping about them growing up. And it was about prescription drugs, you know? (laughs) So there was this other kid called Lil Peep who uh, is a rapper. Again, some 20-something-year-old died of a fentanyl overdose. And now this Lil Xan raps about Xanaxes and stuff. Uh. And uh, so they are kind of like... Carry catchers, this because they're like, we got to rap about drugs and th- yeah, this yeah. is it. Uh, maybe, or at least that's what it seems from the surface. There might be, you know, everyone has depth yeah. to their character, so there might be more to these kids. But on the surface, it just seems like now it's glorified. and Yeah, you know. well, and again, it just becomes your thing. Like, so this is who you have to be and you have to do that thing. And I've... Like, I don't think there's anything grosser than, like, talking to someone who acts drunk because they, you know, they think it's a cool, it's cool. gimmick yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And it's just fucking horrible. So my, in my opinion, um, how, how you find value and what your contribution is to the world is through authenticity. And whatever, in some circumstances, my authentic self was a fucking drunk and taking a lot of drugs in Darwin for a little bit, and it felt horrible. And it, it, I didn't want it to be who I was, and I resisted against it, but then I'd do it anyway, and then I'd resist, and I'd do it, and I'd resist, and I'd do it. And the authentic self that came out of that only exists because I went through that. You know, yeah. you, have to, you have to feel what it feels like to be disconnected to know what connected feels like sometimes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with going through that phase. Scary though, because you can feel it. You could get lost there for a while. Yeah, absolutely. They say drugs destroy your lives, but I know a lot of people whose lives. Like, I guess I'm thankful to where 
I am, thanks to uh, drugs. There was a website called Silk Road back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and I discovered that website because I wanted to buy pot online and mushrooms and other things. <laughs> so, and it would use cryptocurrencies, which is Bitcoin, to yeah. buy and sell. And that's how I learned about Bitcoin. And uh, I just got into Bitcoin at that time. And thanks to that, you know, it just gave me this platform to now go do other things that I want. Yeah, and man. if I was a sober teetotaler, I'd still be working a nine-to-five job. <laughs> Doing here, IT yeah, and Drugs shit. made my life, yeah. Yeah, man. So, yeah, tell us more about that because that is a fucking crazy story. So you, basically, you wanting to buy weed online made you a millionaire. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, basically, what happened was... Um, Around that time uh, when everybody was like just exposed to Silk Road and Bitcoin, it was like the dark thing. It was the dark net. It was considered bad and all that. And if you weren't already using drugs, you were not into that scene. You would tread carefully. You do not want anything to do with that. But when you are, you see this website and the ethos behind it and the kind of people that run it. So it was run by this guy called Red Pirate Roberts. Uh, his name is Ross Ulbricht. They ultimately arrested him, and now they have sentenced him for two life sentences or oh. three life sentences just for running a website where people could freely trade drugs. Wow. And so he did not, like, force anybody. He did not, like, sell drugs himself. He did not kill anybody, nothing. But just for running that website, because they wanted to set an example out of him. But this guy was posting about Austrian economics theory and the uh, free market economics and all that. And he was posting all these articles on his website. So we would all read that. It was very popular. And from that, I just understood what cryptocurrencies are and what their impact on this society would be going forward. So you're taking out the middleman. It's a peer-to-peer currency where there is no middleman. We run our own bank on an infrastructure we share. Yeah, so how does it kind of work? What are the mechanics of it? So in its simplest term, it's a peer-to-peer currency. So you remember the software Napster? Yes. Where uh, you had the music and you could download the music. So that was just like one example of peer-to-peer technology where you don't need a third party in between. Yeah. With Bitcoin, basically the Bitcoins are mined. So mining is a process where computers uh, that are very powerful have to guess this random number and the person who guesses this random number gets a reward. And for that reward, they're also the uh, node, which basically has the data, which will settle the transaction. So settle the transaction as in you send me money, it will verify that that money has left your account and come into mine. Okay. So that is the work the miner does. So that's how the Bitcoins are mined. And then we have our wallets and using this infrastructure of miners, we can send to each other. So the, the miner's coins. job is to find find a random sequence of numbers and monitor transactions. Uh, validate transactions and guess that one random number. Okay. And that changes every 10 minutes or so. Wow. Okay, so they get that. Uh, it's called every 10 minutes there's a block. And in the block, there's a certain number of transactions. But without getting too technical, <laughs> if you have to keep it very simple, it's a peer-to-peer currency with, uh, without any third parties. Great. You know? So the major benefit of this thing is the n- lack of third party. Eh? Lack of third party. Unless you want to convert $2. So if you want to convert okay. your Bitcoins to dollars, eventually we'll come to a situation where anybody will accept cryptocurrencies and they'll be able to spend in cryptocurrencies. Yeah, okay. So... Um, 
Yeah, so that's what it is. And in 2014, I was going through my superannuation statement, and I just saw, like, they were charging me all these fees, and I called them up, and uh, I was like, hey, what the hell are all these fees about? Can you explain them to me? It seems like I'm being double-charged with this. And they put me on hold for, like, 20, 25 minutes, and then they hung up. And I was like, enough of this. I took out all my super, converted it to self-managed, and I put it into Bitcoin. I was like, I'm losing money here. I might as well lose money there. And yeah. it was a totally different story. That changed my life. Wow. So <laughs> that's what happened. And then uh, last year, I um, See, wasn't... Go ahead. Sorry. So you trusted... You basically had understood enough about the way the system's working here that they didn't seem to make any sense. And you trusted a system that was based on logic. Put on mathematics, yeah. So that yeah. makes sense because with super, they are paying for the salaries of all these people that are working there, all the executives that they are working there, all that advertising, marketing. With Bitcoin, I'm not paying for any of those salaries. Yeah. So all that money is invested in the economy and what you hold limits the supply of what is circulating in the economy, which makes it more scarce. So that's why the value of that goes up. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's so interesting, man. Yeah. And, and you can really trust that nobody is benefiting from this besides the people who own Bitcoin or p- people that are trading Bitcoin. Like, do you, like, I guess one of the hurdles that I've come up against when trying to figure out how this is valuable is like, how do you know that nobody's holding the key or whatever? Because it's all based in math or something. All so right. I'm so, so retarded at this. If you store it. your money on an exchange, if you store it somewhere else, then yes, you're not in charge of those keys. That exchange is holding the keys. An exchange is something like a bank. Yeah. So there's a Bitcoin exchange where you can put in dollars and you can buy Bitcoin or you can put in Bitcoin and you can buy other currencies like Ethereum, Monero, whatever. Yeah. So when you are doing those transactions, your your cryptocurrency leaves your wallet and goes into their wallet. So that's where you lose control of it. So if they run away tomorrow, they'll go away with your money. But while it's in your wallet, you control the keys. So the keys are generated by you. And unless and until you have shared them or your phone is infected with the virus, those don't go away. Wow. So that's in your control. So you're essentially your own bank. You are controlling this money, which stays on your phone or your computer or whatever. And then it only leaves when you sign that transaction for that money to go to another person. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. And then, and so basically now, as you've made money out of it, you transfer it back to dollars and live your life on it. As and when I want. I prefer yeah. to keep it in cryptocurrencies, even though the volatility, uh, volatility, well, yeah, is uh, quite high. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's all I understand. I don't think I can say that I understand the traditional banking system because there's so many factors that are not exposed to us. We yes, have no man. visibility into it. Yeah. I don't understand how they are budgeting things. I don't. But with cryptocurrencies, I can see the market operate. Yeah. You know, you can see all the transactions that are happening. You can you can uh, see the volume. You can see and and of course you have to see what's in the news and what's going to affect it. And sometimes you're right, sometimes you're not. But that's why I don't trade. I just got it and I held it for the longest time. I still hold it. Occasionally, if a new project comes across that I feel like you know might have value, then I'll get into it. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, no. Oh, that's so cool. And then so now you work on coding stuff. You work. So, yeah, that's part of what I do. So I work for a company called Enhanced Society. Uh, the goal the right now in crypto, because it's so hot, there's a lot of projects coming in. A lot of people are like putting money in crypto. A lot of people are creating their own tokens. Tokens are assets that are on top of a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. Or there's other currencies as well you can write. So let's say you want to sell your house. You Right now you're settling it on a pe- in a pen and paper 
uh, fashion, yeah? yeah? But you could do that on the blockchain. You could transfer the ownership of your house from one person to another using like a transaction that happens from a wallet to another. So the identity, the ownership of that house is in that person's name and it has been transferred to the other person. Whoa. So there's things like that that are happening. So that would be an example of a asset on the blockchain. Then there could be other stocks could be issued on blockchain and all. Blockchain is the underlying technology that all cryptocurrencies use, uh, or wow, majority man. of them use. Where do you see the future of this going? Um, before I get to that, I'll just complete this one part. Yeah. So, at, so that I can answer that question. So what's happening is with Enhanced Society, what we do is we validate the projects. So we ensure that, like, you know, the project that, that this money is going into is not run by dubious people. We do all the checks that are necessary, both on the technical side, on the financial side, and on the legal side, to make sure those three things happen. Yeah, that, okay. that those projects are not dubious projects. And on, then you, we help them create the infrastructure that's needed to release their token. So I'm involved with the technical side of it. So there's the financial side and the legal side that other people take care of, that, but okay. I'm more focused towards the technical side of it. Now, where do I see this thing going? Uh, Tim Draper, uh, who is a big uh, venture capitalist, um, has said that Bitcoin is going to be bigger than the internet. Right now, uh, when it comes to blockchain and Bitcoin, we are in the early 90s all off that. So yeah, okay. where internet was in the early 90s, that's where we are with Bitcoin and blockchain. Wow, man. In the early 90s. And uh, I personally feel like, although I'm not a fan of Bitcoin itself because Bitcoin got a... Got taken over by corporations and uh, banks got involved and through uh, bribing the programmers that were behind Bitcoin, they took over Bitcoins. But Bitcoin is open source. So the community saw this and there was an offshoot of Bitcoin called Bitcoin Cash, which took away the corporate influence of Bitcoin and they just gave it back to the public. Okay. And this is the real version of Bitcoin. Okay. And this is what I personally feel is where it's at. Yep, There's another okay. one called Monero where in Bitcoin you can see each other's transactions, but in Monero it's completely invisible. Only you can see your transactions and that's it. So instead of storing your money in the Cayman Islands, you could store it in something like Monero where people have no visibility. Wow, okay. So that's, those are the two things that I, I, I reckon might be the future. So if somebody wanted to get into cryptocurrencies, what would they do? Um, all right, the easiest thing is to go to CoinSpot. Um, that's the one I use, coinspot.com.au or independentreserve.com. And uh, just get yourself an account and then you can transfer money from your bank account over to them. And um, then you can just get yourself set up on your phone. You could use a Bitcoin Cash a wallet. Uh, it's called Copay, C-O-P-A-Y. Or for Ethereum, you could use a wallet called Trust, T-R-U-S-T. And for Monero, there is, uh, I think, uh, Cake Wallet. Cake. Cake Wallet, <laughs> cake. yeah. And um, so there are apps you download and then you... There are apps, yeah. And yeah. then you take some dollars and put it into there and transfer it into those money you, that are that currency. You put it in the exchange and yeah. then you transfer the cryptocurrency that you buy from the exchange into your wallet. Wow. And then you can send it to each other. So like, if somebody was uh, putting their trust into, say, gold and silver, like bullion... Uh, mm -hmm. because they felt that that was the sturdiest kind of way of investing. Would you recommend going into cryptocurrencies instead? Uh, I would, but I don't know, Jack. I, I'm guessing that <laughs> that's the right thing to do. But yes, uh, they told us that gold was a limited resource, was scarce. But yes. they've got 
a lot of gold. A lot of gold is being held in storage. And also the cost of mining gold and the economic and uh, environmental impact of it is so huge. It is so detrimental to the environment yeah. that if you had a digital form of gold yeah. that was way more efficient to mine, like mining Bitcoin as compared to gold mining, yeah, you know, so then we could take that burden off the planet as well. Wow, you don't yeah. have to do that because Bitcoin, you can mine with renewable energy sources. Gold, you can't. You have to go dig in the ground. Mm -hmm. And again, there's like heaps of it and it's been artificially made scarce because a lot of it is just in storage being kept away. It's being held, yeah. And a lot of it's paper circulation <coughs> anyway that's not yeah. even actual gold. Now, no, that's insane. Do you know how big that industry is? That's who I worked for. When I did all of my years in mining, I worked for a gold mine the whole time. And it is just ridiculous how yeah. much money and toxic shit goes into that and just the the life toll as well the people you just I've, you've never seen like the apocalypse until you've seen what a mine site <laughs> looks like just an underground mine I, I was working out at this underground mine and it's like the guys didn't see the light of day because they're in the hole for 12 hours a day so before the sun came up and after the sun went down two weeks at a time it's wow, insane. That's that's horrible. Oh <laughs> my god! That. It's and that's how I mean. I, I feel like that's why a lot of miners end up with addictions. Like they end because you get your sort of working class general person who didn't really maybe didn't finish school or what didn't have the didn't want to do academic accolades. So they were after you know just they wanted to do some physical trade or whatever. They can become a mechanic or they can become a truck driver or whatever. And then all of a sudden they're making two hundred thousand dollars a year to go work away for four weeks at a time and come home for one, leave their family behind, leave all their friends behind, leave all responsibility behind. They get everything taken care of for them while they're out there, though it's not, nothing is your choice. So it is one thing like, yeah, I get fed every single night. I've got a roof over my head, but it's you like feel like you're in prison. You can't choose anything. You have to wear these clothes. You have to be here at this time. You have to get on this bus. And when you're at work, everybody's watching you. You, know, you just feel like you're this... Ugh, you're just inside a fucking cage it felt like and so then when you come back you've got one week out of five weeks to explode and all you're going to do is spend yeah. all that money you've got that much money you've never had that much money in your life you've never seen it before you didn't really feel like you worked for it because you're just out in this hole in this like alternate reality it's like being in another dimension and then you come back into reality everyone's looking at you and you don't know anybody very well anymore. You know, everybody's kind of moved on with their life and they have their normal nine to five and you just come back and explode. And because they introduced drug testing, any of the normal drugs that you should take, like weed, for example, <laughs> that would probably chill you out and make keep you at home and keep you safe, you have to get on crack because it'll be gone by three in three days by the time you get to, um, need to get back on the plane. There's random drug testing nonstop up there, so everybody's on fucking crack. You got way too much money and way too much time when you're home, so you just go insane. Yeah, it seems like a very sad life. It's fun for a little while, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if that's what you're into, I think like. But still, you, being in a hole in the ground for oh, uh, is that what terrifying. you had to do? Did you have to actually go inside the ground and were you like in claustrophobic <laughs> spaces? And not not me too much. I did because um, I worked as a um, I was a project manager up there, so I helped 
I worked for the continuous improvement department, and my job was to help them solve problems. So obviously in gold mining, there's, as you say, it takes a lot of effort to get the gold out of the ground. So a lot of times we come up with these like ways of doing things that totally become inefficient and stupid. And you, you're operating with 700 people, let's say, out at that mine site. So trying to get the organized efforts of 700 people to get this tiny rock out of the ground leads to a lot of inefficiencies. So my job was to go in there and help, like certain managers would be like, we are um, hemorrhaging from this department. We don't know why, but we are just constantly losing money and time. And so then I go over there and talk to the supervisors, and then they set me up a team with all the people that do that job and go, all right, guys, what do you think's going wrong? And usually, I mean, I worked directly with the people that were physically doing the work. So I, the one project was with the trucks. And so I'm working with the truck drivers, the truck driver supervisors, and the people that drive the diggers that get the actual dirt out of the ground. And so I sit down in a room with all of them and go, what's going wrong? And they're like, man, you have no idea how much time I sit in this thing and I do this for hours and every time the boss tells me to go somewhere, I have to wait or whatever. So you get all of their information from them, figure out what makes their job better, what do they need, and then it was my job to turn that into a financial model so that mm -hmm. I could present it to the big bosses and say, look, you're hemorrhaging money out of here because you're wasting all this time here. The, your employees are miserable and unhappy. They can't get their job done right. They just want to come in and get the work done and they can't do it because they're so disorganized. So if we save this much time, that equals $7 billion and the solution we're proposing costs $1 million. So if you're willing to gain $7 million, or say $7 million, that's probably more accurate. If you're willing to gain $7 million, you're going to have to spend $1 million and let's put this system into place. And then I um, help them design the project plan and transfer it over to people who actually put it into place. Which job do you enjoy more, that one or the one you got? <laughs> do we even need to ask? Yeah. I love my job now. I mean, that, that's a cool thing. Problem solving is super fun. And working with people that really like what they do is pretty cool. So as weird as it is and how much I hated mining, there were people that I would talk to that just loved it. You know, and so the only times I ever had to go down in the hole was if I needed to like actually observe them at work when they're trying to explain something that they did or whatever. And, I, and they'd be like, well, come down, we'll show you. And so I'd get in there with the supervisor's truck. Like, and so they'd be driving just a normal ute. And then you'd have these like five billion ton trucks that would fill up the entire cavern. The entire hole is bigger than this room. And there, it, there's just a truck just barely scraping down that hole. You know what I mean? Oh, it's to, the only time I felt claustrophobic down there. It's insane being in a dark hole like that. But was when we had a truck on one side and a digger on the other, and we had to pull off to wait for them to pass each other. And you just sit there and go, oh, my God, if either one of them stopped, if anything happened, if the rocks fall down, oh, it's the worst. Just it's such a scary feeling. Imagine that, just being stuck underground forever. But fighting is the highest form of problem solving, right? It's yeah. really high well, that's of problem it. solving. Yeah. In, that, in fighting, I'm in control. You know, like in, a, in an environment like that, it's just there's so much bureaucracy, so much bullshit and so much wankiness. And then the, I have to answer to people that are like, oh, that person isn't doing much. Let's cut their job out. You know, and then you're like, fuck, this is not what I came here to do. I came here to try and figure out how to make life better in general. And I wanted to figure out how to be a better problem solver. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting here working, sitting in a room with people going, well, cut his job, he sucks, that person's shit. You know? And then you're like, holy fuck, this is not what I wanted. And I didn't want to work in the mines. I never wanted to help anyone get rocks out of the ground faster. Like I, I look around yeah, at one yeah. point and go, what the fuck am I doing here? I like making artwork. I like, you know what I mean? I just, what am I doing? One, at one point I was having, um, I had a seizure out there. 
it was just fucked. I, I had, I was not taking care of myself. I was so fucked up all the time. I was drunk. I was, I was taking way too many drugs and I'd go out to the mines while I was at my week at work. I would just avoid all substances. So I would have like for the first four days, just pure withdrawals and come down. And then I'd basically just be pulling myself out, go home and get fucked up again and then come back. I was just this never ending cycle. But so when I, um, what was the point of what I was getting at? Where was I going with that? High level problem solving. Oh yeah. So my, so one day I was there and I kept having these migraines. It got really bad towards the end. I was having migraines like constantly. So I had a migraine for three days or something. So I didn't, couldn't go out to work. I was just laying in my donga, like laying in my room, just staring at the gray wall. And I got up to ride the bike one day and I had a seizure on the exercise bike in the gym. I was fucked. I didn't know what the hell happened. I got up and they took me to the medic and then the medic sat there and he's like, so how you doing? And I'm like, well, I don't know. My body's shutting down. I don't know. I don't feel good. My head, my head hurts. I'm a little bit tired. And he's like, no, 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 no. How are you doing? And I was like, I hate my life. <laughs> and I just <laughs> lost it. I completely poured my heart out to him. I think I was in there for maybe two hours just t- telling him everything. Like, I'm miserable. I'm lonely. I'm not doing what I want to be doing with my life. And he goes, Lorna, I just looked at you, and you look like you should be standing out the front of here with a fucking picket line and <laughs> 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 protesting the mine. What the hell are you yeah. doing here? He's like, you, I, I'm not going to solve your medical problems. You need to solve your life problem. You shouldn't be here. And he was absolutely right. Like, I knew it. The only reason I was still out there was because of my visa. I needed to get a residency visa. So that's why I was there. But anyways, that's what led me. I think everything fell off into that gross spiral. And when I finally made the decision to get out of there and I just accepted that I was going to have to find another way to have a visa and I just needed to start my life, that's when everything changed for me. I had moved to Kansas at that point and I just was like, fuck it, I'll figure out another way. And and that again, like um, as you were talking about before, like you have to hit that bottom to know like where you're going to come out of it. You know, you have to go through all that shit to be like, all right, I'm accepting that this is where I'm going. I knew that I couldn't work for somebody else ever again. No matter what, I had to make it work. So I got, it was almost like I cut off my parachute because I was like, I have to take responsibility for my life. I'm not giving this to anybody else. I need to either make artwork or make videos or write a book or whatever. And that first month of me being sober, I was sober. October 31st was the last time I drunk. And then um, I started writing a book the next day. It took me three months and I wrote the whole book. Yeah, I've never heard of this book. I know. I haven't, um, I haven't given it out to anyone. I'm just finishing editing it right now. I'm just trying to write. Um, I've got to write the final few chapters and then um, hopefully get it out into the world at some point. You've got to credit that doctor in the book. Yeah, like, yeah, he gave me the kick in the ass I needed, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. And how good is that? You know, like, because sometimes, I mean, it's so typical for, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the medical profession, but it is so typical for them to be like, well, here, take some anti-anxiety pills. Here's some migraine pills. You're going to be all right. He just looked at me and was like, you are miserable. Like, you are fucking up and you need help. What was it? Because you, yours was basically just a kind of lifestyle partying thing that kind of got out of control, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it was like that. And, um, also, yeah, just being discontent. I mean, even if, like you said, if partying is, uh, being true to yourself and you're, you're actually having a good time, that's fine. You keep doing it. But I was miserable and all those things didn't help. And, uh, after all these years, it's about, you know, just getting up and 
the next thing you do is something that you really want to do. And unless and until you're at that point, because you know, when you are doing drugs and you have that constant serotonin being uh, released in your blood all the time, the only way you can get over that feeling is to have that feeling naturally when your body is like, you know, yes. you're healthy and you're feeling that way because the only way to beat a drug high is to get the real high through good food and eating. And that's the only way you can beat it. Yeah. Unless you get that real high, you're always going to go back to the drug high. Yeah. And, so. and I think Johan Hari's got a great point about this. He wrote the <clears throat> book Chasing the Scream. Have you ever heard of that? No. What's it about? Uh, it's great. His, he, he kind of tried to find the core reasons for addiction. And so this whole book is, a, is his research basically on the topic. And he believes that it's due to a lack of connection. Is that everybody? Sure. He yeah. said that he'd he'd like to pre he'd prefer to call addiction bonding. That you should change the word to bonding, because you become bonded to the substance in a way that you're lacking the bonding that you need in your life. True, because when I do get high or drunk or whatever, I would create this uh, person that I would have conversations with. This is like the high self that was keeping me company. Yeah. So just to resort to that, because I had no other form of companionship. That yeah. was the companionship I was resorting to, having all the conversations with that. So essentially, yeah, he's nailed it in his book. Yeah, he man. Says that. Yeah. And 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 replacing that bonding with something else, you know, like uh, something meaningful in their lives that they can connect to. All of the addicts stopped taking drugs. I mean, they obviously had to go through support systems, and yeah. as you said, change your friends because being in, in that friend environment where, because I I had a bit of that too. I was like, well, these guys won't understand me if I'm not fucked up. I'm boring. And I was, you yeah. know, I was dead boring compared to the way I was when I was fucked up with them. And I just realized, like, the whole reason I got that fucked up in the first place is that I was hanging out with 21-year-old backpackers at 27, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? Like, what the fuck was I doing? I was so, like, I was ashamed of myself but didn't want to admit it. And then I had never had that period of time because I was with my ex for six years from the age of 21 until 27. So... I didn't have that, like, we partied all the time, like, obviously, constantly. We, we, when I first moved to the Gold Coast, that was all we did. But it wasn't like, I never, like, was the single girl that just experienced my life and grew up. So I did it when I was 27 instead with 21-year-olds. So I was miserable. I was like, they didn't fucking know me. I didn't know anything. I couldn't talk to anybody about anything. I'd start speaking, and I could just see them like, me. <laughs> just, I, if I said more than three sentences, it was boring. you know. Yeah. And I don't blame them. There's nothing wrong with them. It was like, what am I doing trying to hang out with people that are never going to understand me? So instead of acknowledging that and taking the time to find people that I could connect to or, or connect better to myself, I just got fucked up. Yeah, true. But man, you've come a long way then, like just where you are right now in this awesome studio. This, uh, you should probably do a video podcast too or yeah, so podcast because this is a beautiful studio you've created. Uh, cool, man. Thank and you. And just all the things that you're doing compared to I know, what where it was, I was back then. Right now you're inspiring, winning the title and for the rest of us who just like trying to get healthy and I go like, just look <laughs> at what Lana's doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's cool, man. I appreciate that. Every time I talk to you about fighting, I do appreciate it. Like it makes, it, rem it reminds me of like why it's an okay thing to do. Cause I do get a bit ashamed of it because it feels so violent and intense, but there is just something so powerful in that, that feedback loop. Like you cannot kid yourself in Muay Thai. And I, I think I realized that, that, Anytime that we're trying to lie to ourselves about where we're at or what we're doing, you feel you get that gross, creeping feeling and you start needing to connect to something else, drugs or whatever it is. And with Muay Thai, it's like there is no escape. 
You walk in there, you do your best, and you walk out. You don't do your best, you're going to know about it. And that's all. It's very simple. My trainer, Iggy, um, was in here the other day, just did a podcast with him, and he's amazing for this kind of shit because he's done the same thing. He's He was a total, completely off the rails for most of his youth, and then he just kind of switched, and he decided to take better care of himself. And now he is so disciplined with everything that comes in and out of him. And he's a f- super happy guy. Like he's, I, cause I, at first, you know, anytime you meet like a life coach type of character or mentor, you're always like, fuck you. Like, how the fuck are you going to know about what I've been through? But I didn't realize that he'd done all of it. And he literally has just pulled himself through it to a point where he, he can live perfectly clean and happy and healthy on his own with nothing. That's it's great. pretty, yeah, it's very cool, man. But and for most um, anybody that would be like the criticism of that is like, well, you got to live a little like you got to get fucked up. And it's like, yeah, I did that. I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm good now. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I tell myself I am, but I, I'm always mindful that someday things could turn dark and I could relapse like yeah, on man. the hard stuff and all that. So you always have to have your guard up. I'm not at that point where like I'd yeah. go in a party where I know there's drugs. If I know there's like hard drugs there, I'm not going there. What's your worst there's, one? What's my what? What's the worst one? Like what's Anything the... that's an upper is bad for me. I, I will yeah. do them all if it's an upper. So I just avoid that situation. Like recently there was Earth Frequency Festival or something. Okay. I was supposed to go there and I drove up there and I turned back around because <laughs> I knew if I went inside what would happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah you'd get fucked. Yeah. So cocaine mostly crack. All, all that meth. stuff. All yeah. that stuff. But right now I'm feeling solid. Uh, like I'm uh, keeping my workouts more regular and um, just uh, doing crypto and yeah. uh, just living in Gold Coast, all that stuff. Like right now, like the other day I was at a situation where it was there and it was like, no problem, I'm not touching it. Don't need it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So have, feeling like you have a bit of a connection to your life kind of makes you feel a little bit less needing exactly connection that's the word man yeah uh, i'm gonna write it down (laughs) yeah it is it definitely feels like that and i think that's everything i think that's like the meaning of life is that we want connection we seek connection you know every single movie is our love movie at least is built on this like somebody's searching for someone to love them and it's not someone to love them they're seeking connection that's all it is that's all we're ever looking for trying to you know be the best at something it's because you want to connect you want people to be able to see you doing what you're doing yeah that's cool and what um i we didn't really talk too much about your ayahuasca um experience we can end on that what what was the um so you you use iboga once a year ish to help keep your addictions at bay and what was ayahuasca what's the contrast like um I guess I'm still learning what benefits I can have from ayahuasca. I've only done ayahuasca twice in a ceremony. And uh, I'm still learning. That's a mm. uh, hallucinogen I have to learn a lot from. So maybe uh, maybe in a couple of years' time, I can tell you more about it. Yeah. And I'm sure you know friends in our circle who are better uh, yeah. with answering that question. So ayahuasca is not my forte. It's just like, uh, same as what you have felt. You know, there's that feeling of bliss, there's this bodily warmth, there's some visuals, and then ge- there's generally a message, which you already knew, but it is a lot more clear. And you yeah. go, oh, now let me try and do this. Isn't that an amazing thing? When you hear that, like, yeah, when I had the acacia slash ayahuasca together, that it was like, you know all of this. And I knew it. I completely knew it. I was like, yeah, I know you're right, but I just forget sometimes. And they're like, well, and they, it always sounds so stupid to say it that way, but that's exactly how it feels. It's like they, the plant, whatever it was, was like, you've got this. 
this is who you are and you've always been this thing. And and what I, I thought one of the most powerful things about the ayahuasca for me was like it was it was like you are always trying to avoid your life. You're always trying to get to the next thing. What are you running from? Like why are you going so fast? Don't you realize that this is all there is? And it was so suffocating at that moment to be like I just need to get through it. And they were like, get through what? It's all there is. This yeah. is life. And it was like, oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah, there's another saying the other day I read was, uh, the ego says, once everything I want is there, uh, or once uh, all these things are done, I'll have peace. Yeah. And the spirit says, find peace and everything will fall in place. Yeah, man. Yeah. And how do you find peace, though? Um, I'll let you know next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it was awesome talking to you, man. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks heaps for that. Thanks for having me.